Asshole Cord is a bi-weekly podcast in which a group of lifelong friends choose a controversial public figure and examine their history through available public records and various publications to determine if that person is as much of an asshole as the general public suspects. We rate the subjects on a not-so-scientific scale, ranging from Mr. Rogers to Hitler, 1 to 11, and average out the three scores in the end for our final number. Just a reminder, our judgment has no legal weight, is strictly an opinion, and is subject to change at any time especially in the case of new evidence. It shouldn't be taken seriously, so just don't. Throughout musical history, it seems as though some of the artists who made some of the biggest impacts were only around for a short time. Jimi Hendrix and Kurt Cobain both gave us about five years. Amy Winehouse, a few more than that but another star that left us wanting more, asking what could have been. The subject of today's show, Tupac Shakur, is probably one of the biggest musical stars that people still wonder what his career and life could have looked like if not cut short due to, well, the thug life he loved so much. But did he always love the thug life? You know, when I think of Tupac, I think of that outgoing, quick-lipped gangsta that from what I could tell from a few thousand miles away in another bubble altogether as a suburban white kid was living the high life dropping chart-topping records, and seemingly getting arrested about every other month. And if you ask most people my age, they will probably tell you a similar tale about who they thought Tupac was. But most everyone that listened to his music will also tell you a story about how one of his songs touched their lives, bonds them with a friend, or got them through a hard time. Honestly, it served as part of the soundtrack for some of the most fun and carefree times of our lives. But would it surprise you that if I told you that Pac wasn't slapping bitches at a young age, but rather trying out for drama club and Shakespeare plays? Would it also surprise you that, regardless of what you've thought for the last 25 years, that Tupac wasn't, in fact, as West Side as he claimed to be? And lastly, and perhaps the one most painful for this audience, would it surprise any of us white folks out there that love Tupac to know that he didn't, in fact, love you back? We're going to dive into these questions and a whole lot more in this thugtastic Tupac Shakur episode of Asshole Court. All right, want to give a shout out for the recommendation of the show. It was from uh, Christopher Wallace and Marion Knight. Nice. Thanks, yeah, guys. Big shout out. Sounds like uh, some real cool dudes. <laughs> I'd like do the to drink a 40 with those guys. Yeah. yeah. Do the research on who those guys are. All right, let's get some pre show scores for Tupac. Mikey. Lead us off. Okay. Yeah, you referred to a number of things that, as a, a big Pac fan, uh, especially early on in life, that I know a good bit about him. Uh, been watching the documentary Dear Mama. Mm-hmm. They dive into a lot of the stuff there, which is uh, sort of interesting. Uh, like I said, stuff I sort of knew, but they had a lot of really good footage of stuff that I didn't. you just didn't see before. It was like brand new. I think he's a complicated character. Uh, interestingly enough, I feel in a way some sort of uh, bond with him in that he was a smart guy and like kind of a sensitive guy that ended up for that period of his 
life trying to come across as like a hardcore crazy person and didn't have to. Right. Just didn't right. have to be yeah. like that. Um, but it was sort of the crowd that he was running with at the time. So, I mean, that's going to take a score down a little bit for me because um, I don't know. It's hard to know who he truly was as a person, you know. But uh, just keep it short and sweet. I will start him off at a 5.75. There's a lot there that is uh, unlikable. Uh, there's also a lot there that's really interesting and uh, and cool. And uh, he had so many really great songs. You know, I was a, a bigger, that when we were growing up, it was a big battle between whether you liked Tupac or you liked Biggie. It's funny, as I got older, I ended up liking Biggie more. But, you know, those they're also totally different styles. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 100%. You know? So, anyways, yeah, that's that's my score. All right, 5.75 for Mikey. Buddy, what do you got? All right, so um, like you were talking about in your intro, he Tupac really had a lot of songs that were kind of like the soundtrack to our teenage lives. Absolutely. I remember, uh, I mean, All Eyes on Me, that album was banging. Oh, yeah. I mean, got so everywhere gosh it was so one of the much. ones that like if you opened up someone's cd book around us you had that was it that cd the double there. disc yep. oh yeah and i mean like it just starts off as a banger that yeah. Doom, doom, yeah. Doom, doom. only god can judge me now <laughs> <laughs> that is such a good song but it's another double album that should have been pared down to one, one. Yeah. yeah and so that's what i i noticed when i was going back and you know uh i knew that we were going to do tupac so i've been listening to a lot of his music and it's been a while since i listened to it mm -hmm. and um you know i got all eyes on me back in the day and then like back in i don't know about like 99 my uncle got me a uh Tupac's best hits album mm -hmm. and I remember I had just gotten my new car at the time a yep. prelude and I just I remember banging out that CD mm -hmm. both Randy and Mikey yep, in the car all sure. the time mm -hmm. but one thing that I did like about when I was going back and listening to some of Tupac's music is there's a lot of crap there there, but there is <laughs> but there's a lot of good stuff there yeah. you know I, I've come to find out that I like his greatest hits a little bit more th so than a lot of the other albums the deep tracks um, but one thing that it did, it reminded me of, and that was so prevalent back in music, uh, hip hop and R&B back in the 90s, is that like the artist would sit there and like talk to the audience after like singing a song it would be like, hey, man. I know you really feel me on this, and oh. I really want to talk to you. <laughs> the R&B was great. You know? Every every Boys to Men song had uh, the bass guy that was like, baby. Thing is, you know, I'm extre yeah. extremely horny, <laughs> and I just want to see you. All I want to do is you to spread your butt cheeks in front of me. <laughs> but yeah, that was Singing it. Also, to my big black yogurt slinger. <laughs> also, uh, they they always had skits. Yeah, and it usually skits, yeah. was a lot of. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, oh, turn that shit up, man. <laughs> and Those are like the master P and Ghetto yeah, Boys, and they would like fold that. into the next song, and yeah, they'd be like, "There's 28 tracks on this CD, <laughs> but it's like 14 of them are skits." Yeah, yeah. and that's what it reminded me of like us, like kind of like talking up our pagers, like leaving the message where it'd be like a little bit of a song, mm -hmm. and be like, "What's up?" Yeah, if you're trying to reach Buddy. Oh, He's yeah. not here right now. <laughs> Only God can judge me now. <laughs> Leave a message after the tone. <laughs> so That's yeah, awesome. brought up some good memories. Um, but so uh, getting back to Tupac, um, I did enjoy listening to his music. I never really kept up with a lot of what was going on. I mean, like I remember some of the you know highlights, but I don't know uh, about like his early life. 
what the road was before he got to death row and stuff like that. So I'm in, interested to see what we uncover here in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. um, I know that he had some gang affiliations. And I mean, like he was, uh, I mean, there was a couple albums where he was like, fuck you and your motherfucking crew. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. he just went off on people. That's why he died. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I got to kind of score him a little high uh, right off the rip. I'm going to put him at a 6.5 out right. the gates. All right. And uh, we'll see where he ends up by the end of the show. Right, good deal. 6.5 for Buddy. All right. Randy, why don't you wrap us up? All right. So definitely, like you said, big Tupac fan. Played in the backdrop of many of the most fun nights we had together. Of course. Some of the most fun times of our lives. Uh, but I do remember a couple like vivid things about Tupac. Is The first thing is I remember the night he died, right? And I, I won't bury the lead in case you were wondering. I remember we came back from a football game, and we had won. Mm -hmm. We were in the locker room, and somebody, it, like, word had gotten out. I just remember the guy next to me. He was a couple years older than me, and kind of good old boy. And I was like, man. Read racist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, man, did you hear Tupac died? And I remember, man, he put his stuff down. He looked at me and goes, I don't give a fuck. And I yeah. was like, well, all, all right. right. Yeah. Yep. And I definitely did give a fuck. I was like, fuck, man. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, it was, I remember when he got shot because I was like, "He's not gonna die. Yeah, you can't kill that guy." Yeah, and he was still alive for multiple days, and I was like, "He's gonna come out of it." Yep. I mean, come on, with a hit album, you know. And but I definitely do remember him, like all the courtroom shit he had. He was yeah. constantly walking out of a courtroom, yep. sure, and always as, in the orange yeah. jumpsuit. And as we get into the his tale today, God, you will see. Yeah, this dude went on a run for a couple years. He was constantly in trouble and yeah. just always up to shit. But sounded like Lindsay Lohan a little bit. I mean, man, <laughs> eh, she was pretty hard in the paint. But well, I let's say, say for appearances in the courtroom. Multiple. Yeah, I think their charges were slightly different. Just they a little were. bit different, but uh, yeah. time before a judge. But yeah. again, you know, so to Mikey's point, I love the artist and I love his music. Um, but to the asshole court point, I know he was a pretty violent dude. So I had him at a 7.0, actually, oh, wow. pre-show. Okay. Yeah. He is the same level of asshole as Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good starting point. Yeah. yeah. There you go. All right. With a 5.75 from Mikey, a 6.5 from Buddy, and a 7.0 from Randy, Tupac's pre-show asshole score is a 6.42. All right. 6.42 falls in some interesting category. Or interesting company, I should say, whereas one person to the south of Tupac, Nancy Grace, wouldn't want anything to do with it. While the two gentlemen just north at 6.58, both Billy McFarland and Dan Bilzerian, would both love to be in the same breath as Tupac. So, yeah. Oh, 100%. Falls right between Nancy Grace and Billy McFarland and Dan Bilzerian. Billy's okay. probably still trying to book them for... Or what's the dude? I saw something. What was day. his Fire what Fest? Was, yeah, Fire yeah. Fest 2.0. <laughs> well, because he hung out with Ja Rule, whose entire career was trying to be Tupac. That's how it checks. Yeah, there, there it go. is. All right, you guys ready to uh, pee pop and doing this thing? I am ready to do whatever it is you just said. <laughs> <laughs> Let's jump in. Lassane Parish Crooks was born June 16, 1971, in the East Harlem section of Upper Manhattan, New York City. Randy, did you get into the catnip again? Lassane? Yep. Lassane, at age one, was renamed Tupac Amaru Shakur. He was named after Tupac Amaru II, the descendant of the last Incan ruler who was executed in Peru in 1781 after his failed revolt against Spanish rule. Shakur's mother explained, I want him to have the name of a revolutionary, 
indigenous people of the world. I wanted him to know he was part of a world culture and not just from a neighborhood. Yeah, building that, uh, building it in right there. Yeah, so yeah. Tupac's real name is Lassane. Yeah, it's a good thing she changed it at one too. You know, you don't want to do that when they're sixteen. <laughs> yeah, there's always that kid that comes back from summer and he's got a new last name. New last he's name, met yeah. his real dad. Uh huh. You're like, yeah. wait, is this a new kid? No, it's still Billy. Still, but- yeah, but now he's Billy Zane instead <laughs> <laughs> of Billy Jones. <laughs> Tupac was the child of a Feeney Shakur and a man by the name of Billy Garland. But in a story told many times on the show. Pac had a very Maury moment of his own early in life. Pac's mother, born Alice Faye Williams, joined the Black Panther Party when they opened an office in Harlem in 1968. There, she met Lumumba Shakur, a Sunni Muslim, whom she married in November of 68 and changed her name to the name we all knew her by, Afini Shakur. Shakur's marriage fell apart when it was discovered that Lumumba was not the biological father of her son and that it was, in fact, Billy Garland. Man, what a drastic change from Billy Garland to <laughs> Lumumba Shakur. Yeah. When it all came to light that Garland now had a son, he did the best he could to help provide for Tupac and Afini. He picked up extra shifts at the refinery and moonlighted as a security guard to make extra money for his young family. I'm totally kidding. Garland did very little to help raise his son, only seeing him a few times until Tupac was around the age of five, even to the point where Afini told Tupac that his father was dead. It's easier to tell him that versus, you know. Your dad's a piece of shit. Yeah. yeah. Never... So I'm going to go try to find Judy Garland, motherfucker. Got <laughs> <laughs> to get down on this shit. Changing my name to Tupac Garland. <laughs> he didn't die, but he did ghost him again for another 16 years, popping up in 1992 when Tupac was filming the movie Juice. Uh, of course. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. I love when they son, do that shit. Yeah. Son, it's time for us to reconnect. Yeah, yeah, you know, I feel bad for being out of your life, but now that you're paid... I also, I mean, because oh. I'm obviously a piece of shit. Oh, it gets worse. You, you, you know, your mom always kept you from me, right? Yeah. yeah. You, know. yeah you definitely. I wanted to see you all the time. <laughs> the whole time. And you can tell that, uh, you know, I have no friends and no money. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, can you loan me just like some yeah. money until Friday? <laughs> Why don't he love me? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Will Smith style. He later visited Tupac in the hospital when he was robbed and shot in 1994. Garland claimed that the notorious B.I.G. approached him at the hospital while visiting Tupac and believed that he was not involved in the shooting. After Tupac's death, Afeni and Billy sent his blood to Long Beach Genetics. A laboratory test conducted Shakur's DNA and found out the probability of Afeni and Billy to be a 99.97 parent match. Yeah, that's pretty spot on. Also, after Tupac's death, Billy Garland took Afeni to court, claiming half of Tupac's estate, but was denied. The case ended in a settlement of around 540000 plus legal fees, which totaled just over three hundred and fifty k. So this piece of shit got about $890,000 for popping up after his kid died. Yeah. Son of a bitch. All gone. Yeah. Oh, for sure. All gone. I mean, I just, wow. What What is it like to be that big of a piece of shit? Man, yeah. To ignore your child it's their whole life and then yeah. like go scrambling for yeah. for the rest? I like, know what happened to him when he showed up when he was shot that first time when he was in the hospital room. He's like... So, uh, you know, you want to put me in your will? <laughs> I mean, that's what it was. I love you, son. Yeah, I've always loved you. Now, when you pass, because that's going to happen, you just got shot a lot. If you could just put something in there for son, old Billy Garland. you got your Garland. affairs in order. Yeah. You have all your affairs in order. Yeah. Look, God knows. if you just sign X right here, yeah. it gives me power of attorney. Yeah. And I can take care of you the way I've always wanted to take you know, care of you. And what if he had? Because I don't think you get the same Tupac with a name like, 
uh, whatever he Tupac had. Tupac Garland. Well, it wouldn't have been Tupac Garland, but something totally Lesa- different. Lesane Garland. What if instead he had gone Dear with, Papa. with Billy Garland, <laughs> Billy Garland Jr., and he was like a fucking country star, <laughs> like like Darius Rucker. Yeah, Darius Rucker. He's been the first or Charlie Pride. That would have yeah. bridged the gap. Charlie Pride and Darius Rucker, or like Little Nas X. Yeah, sort and he of, redid yeah. like eighties music to country. Yeah. And he was like huge, yeah. yeah. Huh. He did, redid share songs. And Billy stuff. Garland Jr. He would still be alive, probably. Maybe, yeah. yeah. Probably showing up on some sort of weird uh, reality show. Yeah, like uh, Flavor Flav. Yeah, but it, I mean, Public Enemy was legit. <laughs> <laughs> it was around the early '80s that Afini began to develop a crack addiction, one so bad that it prevented her from continuing her work as a paralegal. She struggled to hold down a job and support her kids. So in 1984. Out of the need to start over, Shakur took the kids and moved to Baltimore from New York City. The family lived in the first floor apartment of a brick row house at 3955 Green Mount Avenue in the small North Baltimore neighborhood of Penn Lucy. It's obvious that uh, that Afini never watched The Wire. Yeah, no. <laughs> because uh, the whole premise of The Wire is the crack problem So uh, in Baltimore. I, yeah. Yeah. She had good intentions. You're, yeah, trying to get that clean slate. She does it again later in life. I Google mapped the address and it is a pretty standard row house in a not so great urban neighborhood. And I also read an article about his time in Baltimore and everyone in the neighborhood knows about the house. There is a dude living in it, apparently looking gangster as fuck and not someone you would really want to mess with. And the reporter asked if he knew who grew up there. He said, yeah, and walked off. (laughs) (laughs) Guy named Dana Smith, who was nicknamed Mouseman, forged a musical bond with Shakur and remembers for the first time he spoke to him on the bus home from school that day in september of 1984 the number eight bus was nearly full and shakur took the only open seat beside smith can't sit here (laughs) yeah (laughs) seats taken guess i'll just have to sit next to sam that's right mouse man mouse man was itching to get home and listen to webb's rap attack show at four o'clock so we've talked about the white boy version of the same scenario can't wait to get home from the bus to watch Jerry Springer or a TRL on MTV. Yeah. yeah or even some uh, Saved by the Bell. Yeah. There you go. So these guys wanted to watch Rap Attack. Same shit. So Smith, a talented beatboxer, asked the newcomer if he was into hip hop and if he knew how to rap. He kicked a rhyme to me and I was like, whoa, this is crazy. It was really good. He later learned the rhyme wasn't original. It was actually lifted from a Curtis Blow song Shakur knew from New York, which hadn't quite made it to Baltimore yet. Smart. Yeah. yeah. That's what he knows, the regional thing. Yeah. He's like, I'll <laughs> never know. <laughs> Their friendship blossomed, rooted in shared love of hip-hop acts like Eric B. and Rakim, Run DMC, and an appreciation of different types of music. Kate Bush? Yes, indeed, says wow. Smith. Withering Heights was the song. Sting? Yep. <clears throat> Steve Winwood? Yep. Hey, we were listening to Brian and O'Brien on B104 playing all the hits all day, he says, referring to the then popular Top 40 radio program. So they listen to a lot of different types I of music. I believe very strongly that all of the best artists have a an eclectic music uh, like background or yes, taste. Absolutely. Yeah, like, 100%. I, I mean, it's, it's funny. Like Now, of course, it's unfortunate that CeeLo turned out to be a bit of a rapist, but Dude, I mean, Goody Mob was great. Yeah. CeeLo was great. Uh-huh. As an, and I remember when they were doing his cribs and he was running through his collection and he had like Radiohead in there and shit like that. Yeah. And I was like... Well-rounded. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, they did, when he was with him and Danger Mouse, when it was uh, Narles Barkley, yeah. they covered Radiohead off of, um, whatchamacallit, In Rainbows. And it was yeah. fucking stellar. Like, yeah. yeah. So that's... 
That's cool. That's yeah, good. there's a lot of funky stuff too. That like uh, like old like 40s and 50s style stuff that yeah. they were incorporating into. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's real funny how everybody else is well-rounded and Randy's just limited. <laughs> weird when I listen to like rap, then country, then rock, and my, my shit's no, all over the place. dedicated you know, like, to a very specific group. Man, yeah, it's dedicated all, to a very specific song set. Uh, it's yeah. not that it's it's not, it is eclectic. It's just, right. it's just yeah. about 30 songs uh, in general. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's way more than that, and it's very eclectic. Sixty, and everybody else is well rounded, but yet I'm I'm the basic <laughs> one over here. Tired of commercials in the middle of your asshole cord episodes? Do you want to say in the next show's subject or the next conspiracy we discuss? Well, now you can go to Patreon.com and find us at AHC Podcast. Get those ad-free shows you want. Get some input on who you want to hear about and become internet famous with a shout out on one of our shows. We've even got stickers and swag to show off to all your friends and you'll get all our new Conspiracy Court episodes. Go to Patreon.com today and find us at AHC Podcast. When asked about this type of music's appeal back in the day, Smith claims much of it was practical, a lesson in songcraft. For us, it was all about identifying transitions in songs and how smooth they were. They would meet up every afternoon to write rhymes after Smith finished his homework. Sometimes they'd hang out in a rec center on Old York Road, but Shakur wasn't into playing basketball or ping pong because he sucked at sports. All sports, says Smith. Oh, yeah, I so can he, see that. Pretty slight frame, small guy. Yeah. I mean, to be bad at basketball, though, in, in the hood kind of sucks. Yeah. yeah. A lot of basketball is played there. <laughs> it sucks to suck at sports as a kid anyways. This I mean, is true. Yeah. what are you going to do? You it's know? tough it's a to big be on part the, of it. Yeah, yeah, it's tough to be on the outskirts. Yeah. 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 I always felt all, bad all for the kids were, in right field. All three of us were pretty lucky to yeah. be yeah. coordinated and not, not be that kid. Most often, the two of them simply composed raps, sitting inside a plastic bubble on the playground behind Shakur's house. The acoustics were so good in there, recall Smith. Shakur wore hand-me-downs, including pants that were so big they had to be stapled. He slept in a small bedroom while his mother and little sister slept in the dining room that Afinia converted into a bedroom. Smith says that the Shakur house was always dark and dim. They had lights and it was clean, but it was dark and not a lot of stuff in it. Smith's family and friends razz him for befriending the raggedy newcomer. This guy's a cornball. Everything about him is corny, he recalls him saying. <laughs> <laughs> Corny's been uh, lost in the yeah. in the, dri- you in the You guys remember mix. Chappelle's show, right? Yeah. The, the player haters ball? Yeah. Corny! <laughs> <laughs> I, I, this, this is an opportunity for us to all bring it back. Listeners, if you would please start using corny again, yeah. I will start using it tomorrow. Yeah, we need to use it a little bit more yeah. here on the uh, show here, guys. They've taken, you know what? A lot of people around our age feel as though some words may have been taken from us over the years yeah, yeah. due to whatever situation. Uh, corny is one I feel like we may yeah. be able to bring back, and it would all be in the delivery, right? Corny! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is corny, man. Corny. It's always got to... Corny as fuck. Corny as fuck, man. Have that emphasis on the second syllable. Yeah, the corny. younger generation is like... Corny! No, it's the first... Yeah, it's the first... Corny! Hard, man! <laughs> and then, like, the younger generation is... Or like, did you just say horny? Nah, corny. <laughs> Young folk. Randy's going to get canceled for saying corny. <laughs> yeah. You can't say that in an office environment. You can't say you're horny, sir. I didn't say that. <laughs> they asked him, why do you like hanging out with him? The answer, says Smith, it was simply, we love to rap. 
In the mid-1980s, rap wasn't yet the commercial juggernaut it has become. It was gaining popularity, but it hadn't arrived in the mainstream. The Enoch Pratt Free Library, ahead of the curve, sponsored a youth rap contest in November 1985. Shakur spotted a flyer with Calling All Rappers across the top, urging anyone under the age of 18 to write the best rap about the Pratt Library and be eligible for a cash prize. That was a very different time for rap music, too. In the early 80s, it still was like the Curtis Blow yeah. and that sort of setup where they were just like, things you want to be a good person. <laughs> <laughs> and like these lovers were like, oh, yeah, this is the streets are talking to the kids, you know? And um, then, of course, uh, by 1990, where everything was uh, NWA and gangster yeah. rap, yeah. the library was like, oh, so we're going to sponsor this one. They're like, Burn that motherfucker to the ground, <laughs> bitch. Fuck the library. Fuck him. I will fuck the librarian. Yeah. 1984's best thing I did was learn to read. And then I... <laughs> All right. All entrants had to submit a written copy in advance. No profanity allowed. And the finalists performed at the library at Pennsylvania North Avenues. Fuck your books. I'm in done. <laughs> Shakur and Smith created library rap which Shakur wrote out in longhand and black pen on a piece of lined notebook paper, and he and Smith's group, the East Side Crew, entered the contest. Deborah Taylor, then the Pratt's Young Adult Services Coordinator, organized the contest and remembers Shakur and Smith as very polite boys. They were nice kids, and she drove them to the contest because they didn't have transportation. Okay. And it's funny, they're like, he wrote it in pen on paper. I'm like, I doubt he was using a word processor. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Pulled out his, his MacBook. He actually had some papyrus. Uh, yes, that. Shakur and Smith's winning performance opened with Shakur declaring, Yo, Enoch Pratt, bust this. Yeah. <laughs> and urging Baltimoreans to get library cards. They told kids to stay in school, learn to read, and get all the credits that you need. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Shakur's handwritten verses now reside in the Pratt Special Collections Archive alongside works by H.L. Mencken and Edgar Allan Poe. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, that makes sense. And then they're like, there's later work here. That's why I fucked your bitch, you fat <laughs> motherfucker. Get money. <laughs> you claim to be a player, but I fucked your wife. <laughs> Taylor recalls all the judges commenting on the same thing. The scrawny kid lit up the room with his rapping. When Tupac performed, she said, you cannot take your eyes off of him. Yes, folks, Tupac's first rap battle victory was at a library. Nice. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. That actually does make sense, honestly, If you, as we go along here. Mm-hmm. Shakur and Smith performed wherever and whenever they could. For the drug dealers working on Old York Road, opening for rap group Matronics at the Cherry Hill Rec Center, and even at neighborhood funerals. They also yeah. run, run, I didn't get any other details yeah. about rapping at the funerals. It's but. a shame that he's dead. <laughs> Meet me at the crossroads. Then I'll be corny. <laughs> yeah. No, I can't imagine a rap at a funeral. I can. Yeah. I mean. Not that rap, though. Yeah, not that rap. Yeah. Get your library card and stuff. Then we'll go to this funeral for Muff. <laughs> <laughs> He said, I'm telling you, man, weddings are great, but funerals. You want to get fucked, folk? Go rap at a funeral. <laughs> That's how you get some real action. They're That's real the- vulnerable, bro. You get that sympathy card. <laughs> they also wrote rhymes with titles like Babies Having Babies and Genocide Rap that reflected the political and social awareness Shakur inherited from his mother. Yeah. Tupac was always conscious of that shit, says Smith. He schooled us on that sort of social justice issues, and hip-hop was a perfect outlet. It allowed us to say what was on our mind, and our people listened. 
It's funny because you were talking about Dan Bilzerian potentially loving being mentioned in the same breath as Tupac, but reality was if he had met this version of Tupac, the early Tupac, Tupacalypse now Tupac, they would have been like, you SJW social justice warrior bitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why don't you just shut up about like critical race theory? <laughs> That's what it would have been. Yeah. Or he could have gone the Chappelle route and started like hating on trans people. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Maybe he'd gone Kanye and been like full on neo Nazi and shit. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, that'd be a fun score to uh, go back and revisit. Was the Kanye score? Yeah, yeah. especially with the new information. Yeah. Yep. Anywho, subject to change. After Tupac's freshman year at Paul Lawrence Dunbar High School, Shakur, wanting to hone his performance skills, auditioned for the Baltimore School of the Arts as a theater major. Smith helped Shakur, who'd apparently who'd appeared in a community production of A Raisin in the Sun while in New York, run lines from a scene for his audition piece. We worked on it for weeks, says Smith. You could tell he was destined. He forged tight friendships with fellow theater student Jada Pinkett and visual artist John Cole. Pac was always intense, extremely passionate, Pinkett says in the book Tupac Remembered. He loved Shakespeare. Acting was a part of his spirit. He really loved it. Shakur stayed at Cole's Reservoir Hill apartment for a while and bus tables at the fish market near the Inner Harbor with Smith and BSA friend Darren Keith Bastfield. So he made friends with Jada Pinkett Smith. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yep, yep. Bassfield recalls hanging with Shakur at, apartments, at a friend's apartment and asking what type of actor he wanted to be. Tupac said, a Shakespearean actor, because you have to be the very best in order to do Shakespeare. Bassfield joked that he could picture him decked out in a ruffled collar and tights. Shakur then struck a Shakespearean pose in Bassfield, an aspiring visual artist and rapper himself, grabbed a pen and paper and started sketching a portrait. Someday this will be a painting called Shakur Spear, bastard. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So there's that. Imagining Tupac in tights and like the puppy shirt from Seinfeld is what I kind of envisioned. And I also got sidetracked because I'm pretty sure he fucked Jada Pinkett. <laughs> is that what you were thinking over yeah, the last That minute? also, and then the Shakur Spear came into play and I was like immediately imagined him. In a puppy shirt while he was fucking Jada Pinkett. With his Shakur spear? Yeah. And, I am Tupac yeah. Shakur spear. Yes. And, and, and Will Smith crying in the corner. Right. And, uh, Damn yeah. it, Jada. <laughs> he went and he goes to slap Tupac and just gets shot. Yeah, yeah. Beat up. Yeah. One of the yeah. Sadster baiting over there. Just <laughs> Shut up, Jeff. Yeah, the Will Smith crying meme. <laughs> yeah. Shakur and Smith teamed with Bassfield and Garrett Young to form a new group, Born Busy. They made tapes that were considered Shakur's first recordings, eight songs that remain unreleased. We rapped, wrote our stuff, and worked every day, said Bassfield. Our songs spoke about loyalty and friendship. We are big on that. Just prior to his senior year, Shakur, with tears in his eyes, told his boys that he'd be moving with his family to Marin City, California, where his mother had hoped to get yet another fresh start. They offered to help him find a host family so he could graduate from the Baltimore School of the Arts, but Shakur said he couldn't abandon his family and the Shakurs left Baltimore in the summer of 1988. Yeah, and you got to tell Lafini, wherever you go. There you there are. you are. That's <laughs> you can't run away from crack. Yeah. It's everywhere. She said, I'm going to find a great place to avoid crack. <laughs> We're Let's just going to move off this coast. We're going to move off no, of no, it. No, no, I've got to figure it out. I'm moving to another major city where there's crack <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. So Pac was 17 years old when he picked up and moved from Baltimore to L.A., and when I did the timeline on that, I couldn't help but think, is Tupac really West Side? If you spend 68% of your life somewhere, wouldn't that be 
where you're from. I would think so. Yes. Yeah. One hundred percent. Me yeah. too. Yeah. 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 Even people that live in Atlanta that have been here. Oh, 20 out of their 30 years. Yeah. They're like, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Chicago. Yeah. Oh, cool. You lived there like eight years when you were. Well, a kid. that's the thing. Honestly, it's always a question. I'm like, I was born in Los Angeles, but I was like, but Atlanta's home. I mean, sure. that's what it feels like. Yeah, But you, you moved know? here when you were in sixth grade, right? It's a rant. Nah, it was a, even just before that. But, but even so, while well, you're, you're basically 12 at that point. I mean, I have plenty of memories of California, but Atlanta's basically home. You yeah. Know what I'm saying sure. I'm like, there's no way around it. Like, I'm not like I am a Californian. I'm certainly not. But yeah, I mean, some people just—I don't know. There's a lot of uh, you'll see a lot of people from New York and places like that, and it's but it's uh, he kind of did it in reverse. You know, did. most oftentimes people will stick to their home route. This guy like picked up and the moved. new identity. Yeah, early on, you know, he—you will see in a minute—kind of his stage name implicated he was from the East Coast, but I mean, very quickly he just was like West but Side still, motherfucker. But and, still, I mean, he—he's yeah. he, smart. All right, he was always somebody that could had a. a finger on the pulse of what was going oh, no, on, on around him absolutely and he was like look this is going to play out better for me to be from the west coast uh-huh. you know uh and you know represent that well there was a huge uh hip-hop battle between even the sounds of east coast rap versus west coast and i guess you're just sort of affiliated with that and it was just like that uh west side thing. but even like when he put out the song like to live and die in la and stuff like that nobody's rapping out of baltimore really yeah. yeah, and I mean, like we, you know, down here in the south and the, you know, Atlanta, we had our dirty south style, like mm-hmm. Outcast and stuff like that. New York definitely had its own. But New York's, yeah, the foundation of all hip hop. Of all so, hip hop, yeah, it, yeah. it had its own thing. You yeah. know, the West Coast had their own yeah. thing going on. So each little territory had its own individual sound. Sure, absolutely. And yeah, uh, yeah it's kind of hard to transplant into the West Coast back at that time and be like, no, man, I'm East Coast. Represent. I know. It's funny because, like I said, I was born in L.A. or whatever, moved out to the South, and my favorite rap is uh, New York. (laughs) I love love the boom bap of uh, Wu-Tang and uh, Biggie and fucking Nas and all that stuff like that. There you go. So it appears that when Pac moved out West, he looked to do what he needed to do to get by. Many of the people in Baltimore were shocked when they started to see Tupac's name in the news for all the crimes and run-ins with the law he started to have. They said it wasn't like the Shakespeare-loving class clown they had all known to grow in love. Shakur began recording under the stage name MC New York in 1989. <laughs> like I said. I MCNY. Mean, that one wasn't taken already? I guess not. And maybe not in L.A. Uh, that oh, that's ye- true. Yeah. yeah. That year, he began attending poetry classes of Leela Steinberg, and she soon became his manager. Steinberg organized a concert for Shakur and his rap group, Strictly Dope. Steinberg managed to get Shakur signed by Atron Gregory, Manager of the Grap Group, Digital Underground. Oh, yeah. Initially, he was a dancer, then as a performer. That's right. In January 1991, Shakur debuted under the stage name Tupac on Digital Underground under a new record label, Interscope Records, on the group's 91 single, Same Song. Yes. The song was featured on the soundtrack of the 91 film, Nothing But Trouble, starring Dan Aykroyd, John Candy, Chevy Chase, and Demi Moore. And Shakur also appeared in the music video. And he not only did he appear in it, he appeared in, it in a Yankees jersey. Oh yeah, that's really? right. Yes. Yeah, he was about it. Totally like, yeah, I'm from uh, New York, and here's my Yankees jersey. And they were all dancing around while uh, Dan Aykroyd was in old man makeup, and they were eating <laughs> grody hot dogs. That movie is so fucking weird, man. It's the only thing like, you're watching the whole thing, and you're all of a sudden you're like, wait a second, fucking. Digital Underground just showed up and is like performing. I, I have. Chevy Chase and Demi Moore are like watching and uh yeah, and then there's like you're like, oh that's Tupac. Oh. There's Humpty and Tupac. Yeah, Humpty and Tupac. At the request of Steinberg, Digital Underground co founder Jimmy Chopmaster J 
Drite worked with Shakur and his new crew named Strictly Dope on the earliest studio recordings. Drite recalls that Shakur didn't work well with the group and added this guy was on a fucking mission from day one. Maybe he knew he wasn't going to be around seven years later. From 1988 to 1991, Drite and Digital Underground produced Shakur's earliest work. The recordings were rediscovered in 2000 and released as The Lost Tapes, circa 1989. Afeni Shakur sued to stop the sale of the recordings, but the suit was settled in 2001 and re-released as Beginnings, The Lost Tapes, 1988 to 1991. So, much of legal bullshit, but it's out there if you want to go hear it. Okay. In October of 91, one month before the release of Tupacalypse Now, two Oakland Police Department officers stopped Shakur for the serious offense of jaywalking. The officers allegedly asked for his name. Since it didn't sound American, he answered them, and they brutalized him, scratching his face all over the street. Shakur filed a $10 million lawsuit against the Oakland Police Department. The case wound up settling for about $43,000. So essentially, he popped off the mouth, they threw him on the ground, fucked his face up pretty good. Yeah. uh, Because he didn't sound American, and he was jaywalking. Hey, uh, any listeners that are cops... I will also let you scratch my face up for forty three thousand, <laughs> but not too much. No permanent damage. Couple you know. stitches. Yeah, I, mean, I, I want to be able to take just... a little scar above the eye. Like yeah, something yeah, sexy. Yeah, something cool yeah. like that. Yeah. Looks like I got slashed with a sword. And shit. Like what was that? Well, Brian from uh, yeah from uh, Tekken three. Tekken three. But oh yeah. Ideally, I just wanted Deep you to make it so that guys. I can just peel that scab off and I just go back to my normal life. Forty three G's. I'm down. <laughs> Are you still down? I am. I am still still down down to get my face scratched for 43,000. I am down. (laughs) Shakur's debut album, Tupacalypse Now, alluded to the 1979 film Apocalypse Now, arrived in November of 1991. Some prominent rappers like Nas, Eminem, Game, and Talib Kweli cited as an inspiration. Yeah. Aside from If My Homie Calls, the singles Trapped and Brenda's Got a Baby. Brenda's Got a Baby poetically depict individual struggles under socioeconomic disadvantage. Tupacalypse Now was met with a lot of critical attention after the album was blamed for encouraging a teenager to kill a state trooper in Texas. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, tale as old as time. It's always the the artist that's influencing the people to do their, you know. That's right. I know, which is one of the best skits of all time of the Mr. Show with Bob and David, where they have the, it's a kid that, was going to kill himself and uh, because his favorite rock band had a song about jumping into a vat of acid <laughs> and, and they, and they show up to his bedside and it's uh, his, it's a dude's head. And then there have uh, hot dogs on strings <laughs> for his arms and legs. And they're, uh, they're like, Hey man, like we're, you know, we, we appreciate that you're a huge fan of ours. We wrote the song for you. <laughs> and it goes, <laughs> try, try again. <laughs> this time, head first. <laughs> I remember watching that. I remember watching that at Buddy's house when we were about 16. And I laughed so hard. I was, <laughs> I almost threw up, dude. I literally <laughs> couldn't get over Try again. Vice President and Spelling Bee Wizard Dan Quayle spoke out directly against the album and media criticism followed. In a later LA Times interview, Tupac explained that he simply set out to write about issues young black men faced. He said, when I said that, I didn't know I was going to tie myself down and just take all the blunts and hits for all young black males to be the kicking post for the young black males. 
On August 22, 1992, in Marin City, Shakur performed outdoors at a festival. For about an hour after performance, he signed autographs and posed for photos. A conflict broke out, and Shakur allegedly drew a legally carried Colt Mustang, but dropped it on the ground. Shakur claimed that someone with him then picked it up when it accidentally discharged. About 100 yards away in a schoolyard, Quade Walker Teal, a boy aged six on his bicycle, was fatally shot in the forehead. Ooh. Police matched the bullet to the 38 caliber pistol registered to Shakur. His stepbrother, Maurice Harding, was arrested in suspicion of having fired the gun, but no charges were filed. Lack of witnesses stymied prosecution. In 1995, Quade's mother filed a wrongful death suit against Shakur, which was settled for around three hundred to $500,000. Damn. Yeah, yeah, that hurts. Yeah. So Remember just, how I said that like I would take 43000 to get my face scratched? There's not a price there. I'm going to sacrifice my son. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. That's just fuck. Like 500000 I'd be mad as fuck. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But Tupac was never able to shake that inner desire to be a man in tights, just like Shakespeare would have wanted it, and he continued to work on getting parts in movies. Shakur's first film appearance was in the 1991 film Nothing But Trouble, a cameo by the Digital Underground. And in 1992, he starred in Juice, yeah. where he plays a fictional Roland Bishop, a militant and haunting individual. Rolling Stone's Peter Travers called him the film's most magnetic figure. He did do a really great job in Juice. Yeah. That's what I remember his acting yeah, from, yeah, is yeah. that movie right Juice. there. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Playing that scary-ass dude that you're like, I, you know guys like that, you're yep. like, I don't want to be friends with that dude. Yep. That's right. You got the juice now. And that's yep. also, I use that all the time at work when I tell people. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody gets it because I'm old as fuck. I'm like, you got the juice now. And they're like, what are you talking about? What juice? I'm Orange like, juice? Yeah, no, never mind. In 1993, Shakur starred alongside Janet Jackson in John Singleton's romance film, Poetic Justice, where he famously repeatedly told her, fuck you, about 15 times in a row in the movie. Do you guys remember that scene? I don't remember that no. movie very much. It wasn't really, it I wasn't, wasn't the target demographic. Yeah, no, yeah. We even... Janet's not the greatest actress either. I don't know. There, I remember songs from the soundtrack, and then I remember my sister being like, if I was black, I'd have Janet Jackson's hair from that movie, and I was like... That's weird. <laughs> but, that imprinted. Yeah, yeah. That's honestly, I just that's sort of what I remember. But I never watched that movie. It was definitely not meant for me, being a twelve-year-old little white dude. Well, my uh, my sister and her friend went to a Janet Jackson concert. That's right. Yeah, uh, made it onto the Black Cat video. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's the right. Black Cat video had a lot of uh, live concert footage, and uh, she was wearing a really colorful shirt. Yeah, and was right front front row, and there was there she was that's with her it. friend. It was pretty cool. All right, Tupac also had a role in the movie Menace to Society until he had a dispute with the directors over the script and decided to gracefully walk away from the film. We know that didn't happen either. Slated to star as Sharif in the 1993 Hughes Brothers film Menace to Society, Shakur was replaced by actor Vontae Sweet after allegedly assaulting one of the film's directors, Alan Hughes. There was a disagreement over the script between Pac and directors Alan and Albert Hughes, and they said Shakur spearheaded a physical attack on Allen. A few years ago, the brothers opened up to Complex Magazine about the infamous altercation. Tupac hit him from behind, Albert said. Allen turned around and threw him on top of the car. Tupac was like, go get my chain, and he let everybody else go at my brother. Allen got beat up by like 15 guys, but he stayed on his feet. Shortly after, Tupac hit the MTV studios for an appearance on the network's Yo! MTV Raps. Unprovoked and with a pistol in his waistband, Pac started boasting 
I beat up the director of Menace to Society. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not even alleged because uh, in the, the Dear Mama documentary, Alan Hughes was talking about it and he was like, he's, he said, just to be fair, he's like, Tupac never beat me up. He said, he had about 10 people beat me. <laughs> <laughs> he never laid hands on yeah. me. Yeah. All his boys did. Yeah. Yep. Unfortunately for Shakur, his words were used against him in the court of law about a year later, and Pac was charged with assault. Needless to say, he was also fired from the film. In early 1994, Shakur served 15 days in jail after being found guilty of the assault. Shakur's second album, Strictly For My N-I-G-G-A-Z, was released in February 93, and it debuted at number 24 on the Billboard 200. And that was actually the first time I ever got a real good taste of yeah, rap music. For sure. Was, yeah. uh, and not because of that album, because a girl that I was dating gave me the tape and i would remember took like taking it home and hiding it <laughs> because i was like i am definitely not supposed to listen to this and i definitely wasn't at that time really into hardcore rap at all and we're popping it in and be like oh my god <laughs> this is this is pretty nuts little mikey's mind is blown yeah, yeah. an overall more hardcore album that emphasized tupac's sociopolitical views and has a metallic production quality the album carries the singles i get around and another one of my favorites, Keep Your Head Up, which for me was a song about staying strong during my tough teenage years, but was really an anthem for women's empowerment. Yes. <laughs> Keep your head up. Ooh, ooh, Randy. Things are gonna get easier. You gotta keep your head up. I guess you could look at that one of two ways. Either I was and am so disconnected from reality, or that music has different meanings for people at different times in their lives. I like to think it's the latter. Yeah, Definitely it sings is. to everybody a little bit differently. That's right. Yeah. That's right. When I listen to the Phantom of the Opera soundtrack, it's, you know, it's not about uh, some freak show hiding behind the scenes. It's about a freak show that's out there in the public. <laughs> <laughs> On April 5th, 1993, Tupac was having a concert at Michigan State University in Lansing, Michigan, when all hell broke loose. Tupac wound up getting charged with felonious assault after he allegedly threw a microphone and swung a baseball bat at rapper Chansey Wynn of the group M.A.D. Shakur claimed that the bat was part of his show and there was no criminal intent. Yeah. Nothing to see here. <laughs> Nonetheless, on September 14th, Shakur pled guilty to a misdemeanor and was sentenced to 30 days in jail, 20 suspended, in order to serve 35 hours of community service. So 93 was a busy year for Pac and for all the wrong reasons. And again, on October 31st, Halloween, 1993, Shakur was arrested in Atlanta for shooting two off-duty police officers, brothers Mark Whitwell and Scott Whitwell. The Atlanta police claimed that the shooting occurred after the brothers were almost struck by a car carrying Shakur while they were crossing the street with their wives. As they argued with the driver, Shakur's car pulled up and he shot the Whitwells in the buttocks and the abdomen. However, there are conflicting accounts that the Whitwells were harassing a black motorist and uttered racial slurs. According to some witnesses, Shakur and his entourage had fired in self-defense as Mark Whitwell shot at them first. Shakur was charged with two counts of aggravated assault. Mark Whitwell was charged with firing at Shakur's car and later with making false statements to investigators. Uh-oh. Scott Whitwell admitted to possessing a gun he had taken from a Henry yep. County police evidence room. Oh, snaps. Prosecutors ultimately dropped all charges against both parties after realizing this was a completely fucked up, unwinnable situation. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, Tupac shot two cops and got away like was uh -huh. like they're like yeah. nah we gotta walk away from oh, this oh, the cops you, were dirty as fuck yeah, they yeah. were and when you get to see him walk out of that courtroom 
Man, strut. <laughs> it is the biggest oh, yeah. strut ever. It makes John Travolta from fucking Saturday Night Fever look like a straight bitch. <laughs> I mean, he's thrown. He's like, I'm fucking out of here. I'm like, dude, it, you just, you lived the rapper's dream. You got to shoot two cops <laughs> and, and walk away. Happened? Yeah. Yeah. You Mark- shoot cops, you usually get put on like the fucking electric chair. Dude. Death row. Yeah. Yeah. Mark Whitwell resigned from the force seven months after the shooting. Both brothers filed civil suits against Shakur. Mark Whitwell's suit was settled out of court, while Scott Whitwell's $2 million lawsuit resulted in a default judgment entered against the rapper's estate in 1998. Also, sometime during 1993, while visiting Los Angeles, the notorious B.I.G. asked a local drug dealer to introduce him to Shakur, and they quickly became friends. Mm-hmm. The pair would socialize when Shakur went to New York or Big to L.A. During this period, at his own live show, Shakur would call Big onto the stage and rap with him and Stretch. Together, they recorded the songs Run Him From The Police and House Of Pain. Reportedly, Big asked Shakur to manage him, whereupon Shakur advised him that Sean Puffy Combs would make him a star. Yet in the meantime, Shakur's lifestyle was comparatively lavish to Big, who had not yet established himself. Shakur welcomed Big to join his side group, Thug Life, but he would instead form his own side group, the Junior Mafia, with his Brooklyn friends Lil Cease and Lil Kim. Yeah. Shakur played a gangster called Birdie in the 1994 film Above the Rim. By some accounts, that character had been modeled after former New York drug dealer Jaquez Haitian Jack Agnot, who managed and promoted rappers. Shakur was introduced to him at a Queens nightclub. Reportedly, Big advised Shakur to avoid him, but Shakur disregarded the warning. Through Haitian Jack, Shakur also met James Jimmy Henchman Roseman, also a drug dealer who doubled as a music manager. According to Bill Courtney, a retired NYPD officer who worked with the infamous Hip Hop Task Force, Agnot and Henchman were known in the music industry for robbery and extortion. And that's where we've come, full circle from, hey, we're a library, write raps for us to having a <laughs> hip hop investigation division. <laughs> yeah, Hip Hop Task Force. In, a, in like a decade. <laughs> that's, yeah. There you go. The most serious accusation against Tupac, and probably one that will impact his final score a good bit, occurred in November of 1993, just months after he shot a couple cops. A woman who Shakur had met in a Greenwich Village nightclub and who had willingly performed fellatio on him on the dance floor alleged that Shakur and several of his acquaintances, including Haitian Jack, had engaged in sodomy and forcible sexual abuse when she met Shakur a few days later in his room at the Parker Meridian Hotel in Midtown Manhattan. When police came to investigate the allegation, they also found a handgun and filed a weapons charge against Tupac. Shakur's defense in the beginning was that the sex was consensual. Then, outside the courthouse, when the closing arguments were completed, he maintained to reporters that the woman had actually assaulted him. Just because I don't want to be with that girl don't mean she has the right to say I did all these things she said I did. It was her who sodomized me, he told reporters. Oh, you didn't want to tell people that. Oh, wow. <laughs> The trial took place a year later. I said, <laughs> the New York New York Post top headline, Tupac Shakur pegged. <laughs> Listen, she said, we're just going to try something. He's got that wide-eyed look on his face. Yeah. Like, I don't get it. That's why I fucked your butt. <laughs> you skinny bitch. <laughs> Big's advice to steer clear of dudes with the names like Henchman and Haitian Jack rang true right after Thanksgiving in 1994. Tupac's friendship with Agnot came to an abrupt end after the two men were arrested and charged with sexually assaulting the 19-year-old. The cases were tried separately, and in November of 94, Pac spoke about Agnot to the Daily News in not-so-flattering terms. Courtney believes the incident that occurred next at Quad Studios came as punishment, 
a message was being sent to him not to name drop. On the evening of November 30th, 1994, Tupac, before he got to Quad Studios in Times Square, was at another studio named Uptown, recording a track for a mixtape DJ Ron G was trying to put together. Ron, recalling that night, says Pac, who he was meeting for the first time at the session, seemed bothered by a series of pages he was receiving. He kept getting phone calls and pages, Ron remembers. It kept throwing him off here and there. But Pac finished his rhyme and would later resurface as Deadly Combination featuring Big L. Follow me, the lyrics begin. Tell me if you feel me. I think N-Words is trying to kill me. Oh, he found it. Yeah. Big L died too. R.I.P. Big L, yeah. Oh, man. Unbeknownst to Ron G, the pages were coming from Jimmy Henchman, who was recruiting Pac to rhyme on a song for Little Sean, who was recording at Quad that night with Uptown's in-house production team, the Trackmasters. As Pac explained to Vibe Magazine's Kevin Powell in 1995, Henchman was to pay him $7,000 for the guest verse. Pac needed the money because his shows were getting canceled because of the rape trial and his record royalties were going toward lawyer fees. He felt uncomfortable before he left, Ron G says, but he went to Quad anyway, accompanied by frequent collaborator Randy Stretch Walker and two other friends. Upon entering the building, Pac spotted Junior Mafia Lil Cease waving from a balcony at the studio. Cease yelled down that Big was upstairs. This settled his nerves, Pac said. Before he made it to the elevator, though, Pac saw three men who suspiciously he thought didn't look up at him. One was reading a newspaper. Two were dressed in military fatigues, a sign he took to mean they were from Brooklyn. Biggie security, he guessed. As he pressed for the elevator, the two men in fatigues, one of whom, if his confession is to be believed, was a man named Dexter Isaac, came up from behind with guns drawn and told everybody to lie down and demanded that Pac turn over his jewelry, which the total haul was reported to be worth around $45,000. Pac told Vibe that he was surprised when the men didn't go after Walker, the largest man in the party, and it's widely assumed that Pac was referring to Rocker on 1996's Ambitions as a Rider when he rhymed about being set up. Pac refused to comply with the orders, and the shooting began. Five bullets hit him, and he was beaten and stomped once he was on the floor. After his assailants had relieved him of his jewelry and fled, he rose to his feet and got in the elevator. Bleeding and dazed, he arrived up at the studio where he discovered a large group of men including Biggie, Puffy, Sean, and Henchman. They seemed stunned to see him, he told Vibe, which made him think they expected him to die. He asked someone to roll him a blunt and call his girlfriend and asked that she call his mother to tell him about the attack. Police soon arrived and Pac was taken to Bellevue Hospital, where his wounds were determined not to be life-threatening, fearing for his life because the Fruit of Islam guards assigned were not carrying weapons. He checked himself out of the hospital and went to recuperate in the apartment of his old friend, different world star actress Jasmine Guy. Bellevue was not secure and Shakur was afraid for his life, one of his attorneys, Robert Ellis, told reporters. The place was crawling with cops who wanted to speak to him and Shakur doesn't trust him. Yeah, he was relieved of his jewelry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, what I mean, also, uh, what a strange story. He gets shot up and then he ends up uh, with Jasmine Guy from a different world. And so this is the whole beef with him and biggie yep. starts right here 100 percent. yeah i don't know it's it, it, i i heard a different story too because like the mythological story is that they popped up shot him a bunch of times but i also heard from somebody else or they'd read the police reports and that he had tried to pull a gun out of his waistband but ended up shooting himself huh oh no yeah i don't know if that's true or not but also if it did but still got way. clipped a couple times. And, and afterwards. You know what? The version I heard was the one Tupac told. So, 
if he shot himself, he might have omitted that little bit of yeah, detail. Yeah, you wouldn't be like, yeah, that's yeah, why I shot I tr- my nuts off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But but don't 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 print that. Yeah. All right, no, that's off the record. But I will say, uh, dude is tough as fucking nails. Shot five times, goes upstairs, says, roll me a blunt. Yeah. Call, my, call my girlfriends just sitting around. Yeah. Like, they're like, oh, what? We're going to call the cops on this now? Like, Not oh, me. and they're the ones that are going to call I'd the like, ambulance? Oh, fuck. I think I pooped myself a little bit. I'm going to die. Biggie, come over here. Help me out. Use that big thumb to plug this fucking hole in my body. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, Hurry up. <laughs> I can't move fast. <laughs> How many times have you listened to an episode and thought, man, I wish they would have said this? Well, now with our interactive social media pages, you can. Let us know what you think about our show subjects and give us your scores. We'd love to hear from you. Well, most of you at least. Let's dive back into the action. Remember that stretch walker, the guy Pac thought would have gotten it first for being the biggest and yeah. would have been the setup? Yep. In 1995, a year to the day after the robbery, Walker was shot and killed in Queens in what was to believe to be an unrelated incident. Yeah, this, there's a lot of this stuff throughout these stories. I yep. mean, if you're yeah. involved in uh, that sort of gang life, your life expectancy is incredibly truncated. Yeah. And that's the best way to put it. <laughs> yeah. It's very, uh, you know, they would understand that. The, word. the half-life diminishes quickly. Yeah, that's right. The next day, Shakur arrived at a Manhattan courthouse in a wheelchair, wearing a bulletproof vest and heavily bandaged to receive the jury's verdict for a sexual abuse case from the prior year. So... He goes to the studio, gets shot, does the whole thing, busts out of the hospital, goes to recuperate. One day later, he has to go to trial yeah. for the verdict of his uh, sexual assault case. Yeah, that uh, with the girl in the hotel room comes then, in in a in a wheelchair yeah. with a BPV on. Yeah, yeah. And, and and the name of that day was Bad Day for Ducky. <laughs> <laughs> One report said the rapper was washing down painkillers with mineral water during the proceedings. Talk about a bad week, but nothing he couldn't blame himself for. Shakur was acquitted of three counts of sodomy and the associated gun charges, but convicted of two counts of first-degree sexual abuse for forcibly touching the woman's buttocks in his hotel room. Ah, uh, you know, that's it. Okay, so they give him the, they, they drop the sodomy charges. They said the uh, jurors said a lack of evidence stymied a sodomy conviction. Okay. But then they're going to hit him hard with the, he touched his, the butt groping. He touched her butt forcibly. And there's no, they didn't give like explicit details. No, I know. But it was on paper. It's she's claiming something went up there. They're saying. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I'm just sitting there thinking like on paper, it sounds crazy. They're like, no sodomy. You got shot a whole bunch. You, you touched her butt and now you're going to prison. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Shakur posed a $25,000 bond and spent the next few weeks being cared for by his mother and a private doctor at TV Hottie Guy's home. The Fruit of Islam and former members of the Black Panther Party stood guard to protect him. What would the Fruit of Islam be? Do you think it'd be like an apple or something <laughs> pretty conservative? Yeah, like a a grape. <laughs> a, a pear. A pear. A pear. This is it one of those arty, lame meal fruits? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> In February 1995, he was sentenced to 18 months to four and a half years in prison by a judge who decried an act of brutal violence against a helpless woman. Shakur's lawyer characterized the sentence as out of line with the groping conviction and the settling of bail at $3 million as inhumane. Shakur's accuser later filed a civil suit against Shakur seeking $10 million for punitive damages 
which was subsequently settled. For $43,000, just like <laughs> the Oakland police. I had to give it back. Yeah. But I mean, a lot of these celebrities back then in the late 90s, early 2000s are getting sued left and right for everything that they can. Yeah. You know, it's a... Uh, it's Still are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hey, dude, it's a target. But also, sometimes real shit happens and they yeah. deserve to be sued. 100%. Yeah. Shakur- and if you get a criminal case, you know that civil case is coming now. <laughs> oh, for Always. Sure. For sure. Shakur began serving his prison sentence on sexual abuse charges at Rikers Island on February 14th, 1995. Happy Valentine's Day, Tupac, before being transferred to the Clinton Correctional Facility in March. While in prison, he began reading again, which he had been unable to do as his career progressed due to his marijuana and alcohol habits. So I read that and I thought, like, could he not read or like, did he just not read? <laughs> he didn't have the time. All right. I, so I, I honestly uh, haven't read a book in a long time. I got I do too it. drunk to read. Yeah. <laughs> I do everything on Too Audible. Hard to see. I do everything on like Audible books now because I just don't have the fucking time. That's right. That was him. But he was just he also, did Audible back in the he, 90s. Yeah, he did. He didn't have that option. And he was also getting drunk as hell and smoking weed and was just like, I'm going to not read anymore for a little I while. I can't see straight. And, I, uh, I need somebody to read this Machiavelli book to me. Yeah. And I've definitely, yeah, my jail time, I read more in my entire life in that probably stretch than you ever will because what else are you going to do? Yeah. yeah. You just read. Yep. Works such as The Prince by Italian philosopher Niccolo Machiavelli and The Art of War by Chinese military strategist Sun Tzu sparked Shakur's interest in philosophy, philosophy of war, and military strategy. On April 29, 95, Shakur married his girlfriend, Keisha Morris. The marriage was later annulled. While in prison, Shakur exchanged letters with celebrities such as Jim Carrey and Tony Danza, mm-hmm. among Jim others. Jim Carrey and Tony Danza? The Tony Danza one's really weird. Yeah. Yeah, they wrote letters to Tupac in prison. I mean, I, I mean I've seen Jim Carrey dancing with 50 Cent and no, stuff No, no, like I can that. see Jim Carrey. The Tony Danza one's Yeah, bonkers. Tony Danza's a little bit, yeah. Tupac, I don't know if you know who I am, but uh, you ever seen Who's the Boss from back in the day? <laughs> hey, I was the boss. Yeah, I know I you're the, the boss. boss of rap. I'm the boss of yeah. this family. Yeah, I was, uh, I was on Taxi, and then I was also <laughs> on... Uh, you know, who's the boss, and I haven't been relevant for about six years now, but I just want to make sure you're okay in prison. He was also visited by Al Sharpton, who helped get Shakur released from solitary confinement. He'd also been making what's been called his greatest album in the months leading up to his trial and sentencing. Shakur's third album, Me Against the World, was released while he was incarcerated in March of 95. It's now hailed as his magnum opus and commonly ranks among the greatest, most influential rap albums. The album debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 and sold 240,000 copies in its first week, setting a then-record for highest first-week sales for a solo male rapper. Shakur went on to win Best Rap Album at the 1996 Soul Train Music Awards, and in 2001, it ranked fourth among his total albums and sales, with about 3 million copies sold in the U.S. By October of 95, pending judicial appeal, Shakur was incarcerated in New York. On October 12th, he bonded out of the maximum security Danamora Clinton Correctional Facility in the process of appealing his conviction once Suge Knight, CEO of Death Row Records, arranged for the posting of his $1.4 million bond by essentially blackmailing Tupac in a making of sign with Death Row. Yeah. If I'll you get want, you out, but you got to sign with us. Yep. If you want to learn a whole lot more about that story and a whole lot of other wild-ass stories about hip-hop in general, check out the Suge Knight episode of AHC Podcast. That's right. Oh, yeah. We dive deep into all yep. of that. So uh, you guys talked about All Eyes on Me. Yeah. A two-album uh, two disc. Yeah. Yep, double disc. Do you know why? Uh, I don't. So 
Tupac, well, 27 songs long or something like that. Part of his deal with Death Row was it was either three or five albums he had to do for them. Oh, okay. And the double disc counted as two. Smart. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Yep. Okay, so yeah. I actually applaud the double album in this one case. Shit on it. Yeah. yeah. Like just trying to get out versus... Like Guns N' Roses just putting out like Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. There's not a double album that couldn't be taken down to one that I yeah. can find. Show me one. Listeners, right. go ahead and just hit us up on Instagram and all that shit. Tell me a double album that deserved to be a double album. It's fair. It's a fair ask. Pac wasn't quite done with his law of trouble yet. He was out on bond awaiting the appeal of his conviction. But it was still another crime he had to account for. In 1994, Shakur was arrested in Los Angeles when he was stopped by police on suspicion of speeding. Police found a semi-automatic pistol in the car, a felony offense because a prior conviction in 1993 in L.A. for carrying a concealed firearm. So, on April 4th of 96, Shakur was sentenced to 120 days in jail for violating his release terms and failing to appear for a road cleanup job, but was allowed to remain free awaiting appeal. On June 7th, his sentence was deferred via appeals pending in other cases. So, in the span from like 93 to 96... Mm-hmm. Just constantly either in jail, going to court. In front of a in, judge. In front of a judge. Yeah. Racking it up, bro. Yeah. And this is like, again, he had the albums coming out, you know, and dropping some of the, the biggest hits that we knew of. Well, the the, the publicity doesn't hurt. No. Yeah, of course. Your name in the news. No publicity yeah. is bad publicity, yeah. you know, so. But he's always got guns and beating people up. And, yes, yeah, and that's a that's, I mean, that's a, the thug life. I get it. Pretty stretch. From where he began there in like the out in Baltimore in the, you know, in the drama program. Well, in the Dear Mama um, documentary, the one guy was talking to me, he was like, he's the smartest dumb motherfucker I know. Yeah. And I remember sort of doing the same thing to some extent where you're just like, it's like you adopt this persona of being like a troublemaker, but you're, you're not. Well, yeah, in a sense, like, uh, well, generally well, speaking, in a sense, with somebody that has moved around so much because he was in New York, then Baltimore, then out to California, yeah. all that before you're what, like 16, 17 years old yeah, at the yeah, end of the day, yeah. you start to develop almost like a chameleon style to your personality, yeah. you know, to kind of be able to jump in and out of all these different groups. And it might not be exactly what you want, per se, but that's the group that. You know, like the rappers, for instance, you know, you want to be a rapper. Yeah. You might not agree with everything that they say, but fuck, this is if the you ticket. Want to be, you want to be a path. rapper, you got to go hang with the rappers. And to yeah. be perfectly honest, like for some reason, I always assumed that he was older when he died than he was, but he was 26. 25. I think. 25. Yeah. yeah. That's so, young. Yeah, man. it's really, really fucking young. So, I mean, like I said, even in your teen years, like you adopt all these different personas, you change a lot of ways. Like, that's. The joke is like your parents like it's a phase. Yeah. It is a phase is most a phase. of the time. Hundred yeah. percent. And uh, he never like by the time that he was like getting out of like his teenage phase stuff, he was plugged into shit that was making him tons of money. Yeah. And had to sort of adopt that persona, even though really probably like I said wanted to wear some tights and be a Shakespearean dude. <laughs> Would rather be acting and be yeah. the Will Smith, but yeah. is the you know gangster yeah. rapper. Yeah. And being the gangster rapper was making him the money, making him and giving him. All of that publicity. So That's right. On the night of September 7th, 1996, Shakur was in Las Vegas, Nevada to celebrate his business partner Tracy Danielle Robinson's birthday and attended the Bruce Seldon versus Mike Tyson boxing match with Suge Knight at the MGM Grand. Afterward in the lobby, someone in the group spotted Orlando Baby Lane Anderson, an alleged Southside Compton Crip whom the individual accused of having 
recently tried to snatch his neck chain with a Death Row Records medallion in a shopping mall. And apparently uh, they would in get... A footlocker. The Crips would yep. get... Um, uh, like it was like a bounty if you could get the medallions. Sure. Yep. From the other uh, gang members, it's almost like scalps from the Indians. Yeah, yeah, basically, like, yeah. but less gross. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the time, the hotel surveillance footage shows the ensuing assault on Anderson. Shakur soon stopped by his hotel room and then headed with Knight to his death row nightclub, Club Six Six Two, in a black BMW 750IL sedan, part of a larger convoy. At about 11 p.m. on Las Vegas Boulevard. Bicycle Mounted Police stopped the car for its loud music and lack of license plates. That's got to be the most embarrassing pullover ever. <laughs> Fucking bicycle cop. Yeah. Excuse me there. Excuse me. Pull Shug. over. Hey, Shug. Pull, pull your $70,000 car over <laughs> while I take off my, my bicycle shorts and arrest you, pussy. With my, <laughs> with my flashlight. The plates were found in the trunk and the car was released without a ticket. At about 11.15 p.m. at a stoplight, a white four-door late-model Cadillac sedan pulled up to the passenger side and an occupant rapidly fired into the car. Shakur was struck four times, once in the arm, once in the thigh, twice in the chest, with one bullet entering his right lung. Shards hit Knight's head. Frank Alexander, Shakur's bodyguard, was not in the car at the time. He would say he had been tasked to drive the car of Shakur's girlfriend, Kadita Jones, who is the sister of Rashida Jones of the office That's Parks right. and Rec. That's right. Yep. yep, yep. So her sister was Tupac's girlfriend at the time. Shakur was taken to the University Medical Center in Southern Nevada where he was heavily sedated and put on life support. During the six days he was on life support, he reportedly stirred and regained consciousness just once when a girlfriend brought a CD player to the hospital and played him Don McLean's Vincent Starry Starry Night. That's right. That was his favorite song. Yep. In the intensive care unit of the afternoon of September 13th, 1996, Shakur died from internal bleeding. He was pronounced dead at 4.03 p.m. The official causes of death are respiratory failure and cardiopulmonary arrest associated with multiple gunshot wounds. Now, there's also the other story of the cop that got to the scene. Yes. Which is fantastic. The first cop on the scene. The first cop on the scene gets to Tupac. Yep. Who has been shot. Yep. And he's asking, he says, who shot you? Who shot you? And Tupac's answer was... Fuck you. <laughs> yep. And that's like his last words. Yeah. And that lines up with him rolling up an elevator after being shot five times and being like, roll me a blunt and <laughs> call my girl. Yeah. So I also heard an interesting story um, while doing the research for the show. It was Snoop Dogg was talking about that specific incident. And he had talked about how back at that time, it was always Snoop, Suge, and Tupac in like all the pictures. And because uh, they were always hanging out all the time. Yep. Earlier in that week, they had gone out to New York and Snoop was talking to uh, Biggie and Puffy and was like, yeah, man, I'd love to do some music with you, you know, like trying to kind of, I guess, bridge that East Coast, West Coast gap and stuff like that. And Suge and Tupac had found out about it and were pissed off because they were like, that's kind of like he's talking to the enemy, yeah, trying yeah, to like sure. do that. And they saw, you know, they were Snoop was trying to stop that shit and. You know, Suge was trying to keep it going for, you know, the, the money aspect of yeah. it and just the news of it. So as they're flying back from New York to L.A., Snoop said that he actually slept with a blanket and a little uh, a knife yeah. uh, underneath the blanket because, like, he felt like they were going to come at him. They're yeah. like, they he's they've never come at me. I've seen them go after people. But maybe this is the time that they come after me. Now I like to imagine Martha Stewart gave him a paring knife. <laughs> Use this, Snoop, yeah. if they come after you. Hide the shank in your sock. 
put it right through their ribs. <laughs> yeah, so uh, he gets off the plane once they get in L.A. He gets off the plane, goes his own way. Suge and Puck get in the car, and they head out towards Las Vegas, and that's where all that shit happens. Oh, so, wow. like, Snoop was like, I should have been in the car with them, but we had beef, and that's how that went down. So, yeah, that's crazy. Huh. Yeah, everybody that was smart got the fuck away from Suge Knight. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly 100%. right. 100%. Shakur's body was cremated the next day. Members of the Outlaws were calling a line in his song Black Jesus, although uncertain of the artist's attempt at a literal meaning, chose to interpret the request seriously and smoke some of his ashes after mixing them with marijuana. Well, it's like the Europeans doing the marijuana and tobacco. Yeah, but this was marijuana and yeah. dead people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, a little bit different. If you were to ask me who killed him, my money would be on this guy, Orlando Baby Lane Anderson and his crew. No one will ever know because the one member of Tupac's crew that said he could identify the shooter was killed in an unrelated shooting two months later, yep. and the alleged trigger man, Anderson, was killed in Compton, California less than two years later on May 29, 1998, in a dispute over drug money with a rival gang. So we will never know. But RIP, Tupac. Yep. Let's get some final scores. Okay. And uh, just like I was talking about, a lot of people that are involved in all this stuff End up dead. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. A year down the road, six months down the road. Don't like, live that life. Not that our listeners are. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt a lot of you guys are really hardcore into gang activity. But if you are, just keep this in mind. Get your library card. <laughs> and I'm glad for us at 18 that we weren't able to find that ghetto life, right. you know, that thug life. We, uh, I mean, we could have found it if we wanted it, but we... I think we knew a little bit. I didn't. I did a little jail time. <laughs> but I wasn't doing serious shit. It was dumb shit. So. Sodomy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This one's sodomy and aggravated assault. Yeah. With baseball bats uh, and right. shit. Yeah. No, I didn't do sodomy with baseball bats. No. 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 I just did that to myself on my free on my free time. Nice. Yeah. Let's get some final scores. Mikey, what you got? Okay. Uh. So... Tupac was an asshole in a lot of ways. Again, I still feel like a certain affinity because, like I said, he he probably could have just been a normal dude if he'd gone down a different path, like an artistic, like a uh, talented guy. He wasn't given that opportunity in the sense that he got really fucking rich. Like if he had stayed in Baltimore, maybe he would have been that guy. Maybe so. Yeah. Look at a guy like Ice Cube. That was yeah. pretty hard back in the yeah, day, yeah. and. Yeah. Pretty well to do now. He's now yeah. Mr. Family Man. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. He could have done that route or whatever and uh, said a Feeney, like escaping to San Francisco, sort of set it all off. I don't know. I mean, like I said, I think deep down in his core, he probably wasn't this sort of ostentatious gangster motherfucker. I think he'd adopted that persona to just sort of like uh, navigate through the waters he was in, the waters that were paying him very well. Yep. Uh, but he did a lot of bullshit. Yeah. Uh, so I am going to shoot him up to considering the rape charge that he was convicted of, uh, but not the sodomy part, just the groping butts. There's probably a little bit more in there considering his assault on people, like just randomly and constantly his, uh, temper that just kind of flew off the handle regularly. I wouldn't want to really hang out with him. I'm going to put him up at a seven. All right. I think uh, it was just tough because, you know, we got some scores under that that aren't great. But I think he's probably a little worse than Axl Rose, so that makes sense to me. All right, there you go. Good, uh, good analysis, Mike. Buddy, what you got? All right. So um, 
I enjoyed the show for sure. Uh, finding out a little bit more about the guy that we, uh, you know, sang tons of his songs back in the day and even still will bust out here and present. You know, I, I knew that he had a troubled beginning, I guess, in a sense, just bouncing around and uh, from place to place. And also, you know, with the Maury, who's your father? You know, that, that's always tough for a kid. But there's stuff that's on his roster that I just I can't overlook. I mean, you look at, you know, there's the the six year old kid that got killed, you know, with with his gun. Now, that's not yeah. necessarily oh, yeah, I about that one. That's not necessarily like through his trigger, you know, like his finger pulling it. But at the, if you hadn't brought the gun, 50 50. Yeah. If you hadn't all, brought that gun. Yeah. And, and he blames his brother. But really, at the same time or his friend, whoever it was yeah, with him, brother, stepbrother. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I mean, it's it's 50 50 at the end of the day. It could have been him. Could've, but yeah, like Mikey said, if you don't bring the gun, it's not going to happen. And that's the thing that you keep on seeing, like every time he gets pulled over, he's got a gun in the car and stuff like that. And that doesn't seem to line up with who he was as the kid in Baltimore, more so the persona that he had to kind of carry, you know, over on the West Coast. You know, he assaulted Alan Hughes. Uh, That was kind of a dick move. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Maybe he didn't assault him, but he got he, he had ten of his even boys worse. jump him. Yeah, you know? even worse. Yeah. Um, in fact, it sounded like Alan Hughes like punked him out, and then he was like, "Let me go get my friends, bitch." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he and I'm sure he was being this fucking hot shot on the set. Oh yeah, I am God's gift to the world, and you know uh, you're not bowing to me. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, no, he definitely seemed like somebody who was arrogant. I'm not mad about him shooting those cops in the butt, though. Yeah, I'm <laughs> not, not really. so mad about that. Uh, I've read the whole story, and it sounded like they were, they were obviously they were doing some illegal shit. Yeah. And uh, it's also just hilarious, the whole thing. <laughs> a rapper shoots two cops and <laughs> gets acquitted. Yep. The legal system apparently is uh, somewhat, <laughs> like, not totally slanted. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, no, um, I also, he definitely was one of the, the, like, the kerosene to the East Coast, West Coast rap feuds that were going on. Sure. He was definitely always, uh, you know, uh, lighting the, the fires to, to make everything worse at the end of the day. And, you know, maybe he was trying to do it more for the theatrics because he saw that they were getting paid. But at the end of the day, like, some, some horrible shit went down because of all this. And I also want to point out here what's really funny is that his lyrics and mo- a lot of his songs are very, like, uh, uplifting. Dear and, Mama. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and Biggie's are very much about, like, the dirtiest murder you and kill you <laughs> in your bed shit. And the, their personalities were opposite. Yeah. Like Biggie was like a really nice kind of <laughs> calm like, guy. Teddy bear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like his songs, like talking about fucking <laughs> your father <laughs> with a broom, yeah, or whatever. It's just kind of a weird, uh, like interplay between the two of them. And I hate that because it's like these two got together, and you could tell that they were friends in a sense. And just due to bullshit that happened, everything went askew. But had they like partnered up and really gone the like through the test of time. Uh, who knows what kind of incredible music they could have made throughout the years. Um, but at the end of the day, it does seem like everything that we've covered in this episode that Tupac was a bit of a dick. He thought he was uh, God's gift to the world and um, overstepped his line many times. So uh, at the end of the day, I'm going to put him at a 7.7. Okay. All right. That's going to jump him right in between uh, Kevin Spacey and Ron Jeremy. You know, both of them had some uh, sexual assault charges on them. They have many, 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 many sexual assault <laughs> charges. Between them, there's like a combined like 90, yeah. I think. Yeah, end of the day, I'm going to end up Tupac at a 7.7. Okay, 7.7 right. 7 for Buddy. 
Nice. Randy, bring us home. All right. So I echo a lot of your sentiments, uh, both of you. You know, big fan of the artist, but there's just a lot here to go off of in terms of just kind of shitty behavior. Yeah. You know what I mean? Hitting people with baseball bats, always carrying a gun. It's hard not to skew your score, especially with characters like this, right? Mm, Sure. Um, Because obviously we have that, like, piece of our heart that kind of loves him and loves his music. Of course. Like, the human in me knows... Eh, you're kind of a piece of shit. And I yeah. definitely wouldn't want my son or my daughter kind of hanging around. You. I don't want to hang out with you. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. Yeah. Talk about feeling on edge the yeah, whole time. Yeah, you're too volatile, dude. Yeah. yeah. Nah, not for me. Not for me. So kind of looking at where I think I would land him, he's going to have interesting territory for me. I'm going to put him one tick below Don King and one tick above Takashi 69 oh. at a 7.57. Okay. Final score for Tupac. I like it. All right. With a 7.0 from Mikey, a 7.7 from Buddy, and a 7.57 from Randy, Tupac's final asshole score is a 7.42. All right, 7.42. Going to put him just a tick above Charlie Sheen at 7.33 and just a tick below Steve Jobs at 7.5. Oh, interesting territory. Charlie Sheen, Tupac, and Steve Jobs are kind of bunched up together. Hey, that's a nice little trio right there. Yeah, awesome. Excellent. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Asshole Court. Call to action, everybody. The boys at AHC Podcast are on the road. We're heading to Denver in August for Podcast Movement 2023, and we want a little bit of your help trying to raise some money through Patreon to help us with flights and hotels and tickets and all the other expenses that kind of go into it. Uh, As you know, this is not our full-time gig. We love all of you, but yeah, this is uh, coming out of our own pocket. And any support that we can get from the audience would be much appreciated. Plus, we're also trying to link up with other podcasts and stuff like that. So if you guys know of any that uh, you think would uh, kind of be a good fit with us or a good matching, you know, let us know. Uh, let's do some cross promotion and uh, try to get some uh, wheels moving on that. Absolutely. And as always, we appreciate the support. Be kind to one another. We'll see you next time on Asshole Court.